Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's me, David Robertson. It's me, Christopher Cotter. And guten tag, we should say. Wie geht's? Guten tag, aus Bonn. Yeah. Um, we are recording um, in Bonn at the moment after um, having had an intense few days discussing the public rhetoric of good and bad religion. That's not what we're talking about today, though. Um, today, we've got Brad Stoddard. Um, it's an interview that you recorded quite a while back and it sort of fell through the cracks a little bit, but we're really glad to be able to bring it to you. It's been DM Cooper Harris about Ralph Ellison's Invisible Theology. Take it away, Brad. Hello, this is Brad Stoddard with the Religious Studies Project. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Cooper Harris. Cooper is an assistant professor of religious studies at Indiana University, and he just completed his first book, titled Ralph Ellison's Invisible Theology, uh, soon to be published with NYU Press. Cooper, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you so much for having me, Brad. It's delightful to be here. Thanks. Will you introduce your book to the listeners? Yes, I'm, I'm delighted to. Thank you all for listening. Uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Theology is a book that examines what I would call overlooked, overlooked uh, or, or under appreciated religious and theological dimensions of the concept of race. Uh, the concept of race as we now know it emerges somewhere around mid, the mid-20th century, uh, where we have these two turns, one to a kind of materialism, uh, on the other hand, a turn to, to critical theory. You have the rise of black studies uh, in the 1960s. You have the emergence of a kind of political sensibility, mid-century political sensibility that defines race according to these terms. It has remained a, a popular way in a lot of the ways that we, we talk about, uh, the ways that we talk about um, African-American culture, the ways that we think about our, our current political process, the ways that we imagine uh, mar the marginalization of people. Uh, we, we often do this in political, materialist, economic terms. Uh, what I'm interested in is the way that Ellison's term invisibility, uh, Invisible Man, 1952 is his novel. The term invisibility has come to signify this kind of marginalization. Uh, if you go to your uh, institutional library and punch in invisible in a title search, you're gonna get hundreds or thousands of, of titles back. Invisible women, invisible children in our Houston schools. Uh, title after title after title that deals in terms of, of a kind of political materialist marginalization. Uh, that's great. My question becomes, why is it that we're using, why is it that invisible carries that valence when it also carries, when it also is, um, well, a metaphysical property? Uh, I might even say a ghost. Uh, these kinds of things. And so I, I work from that, and I think about how Ellison is actually working from an alternative understanding of, um, of, of racial dynamics in American culture, or even in the broader uh, cultural systems of the West. Uh, he was very much at odds with the emergence of this definition of race. He is trying to think humanistically at a time when everybody else is turning to the social sciences He's aghast at the Moynihan Report, which defines poverty and other sociological systems. He is dissatisfied with uh, 
the, the kind of activist political mentality that goes into the production and the criticism of African-American culture. And so what I see him doing is actually trying to work through this in an alternative way. And one way really to strike hard back at that materialist move is to think theologically. So what is it about race, about this concept of race, and for Ellison this means blackness, what is it about it that has an alternative kind of dimension? And so I begin by looking at, there's four or five ways of looking at an invisible man. We look at biblical invisibility, we look at invisibility among Puritan sources, Cotton Mather and Hutchinson. Uh, we look at uh, Luther and Shakespeare. Uh, we move on to Congo religion and thinking about uh, invisibility and death and the invisible powers and its relationship to racecraft. So how is how is witchcraft and racecraft? This this fantastic book book by um, Barbara Fields and I'm blanking on this Karen. This wonderful book by Barbara and Karen Fields uh, that 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 compares. Uh, the, the ways that, that many scholars think about race uh, with with a kind of magic, uh, so racecraft, witchcraft, these kinds of things. Um, on the other end, I look at more contemporary versions. Clint Eastwood's empty chair, drones. Uh, what are these these kinds of? And I'm going to do my Gilbert Bond hands and and, and say, but what what are what are the uh, the, the, the spectacular imaginaries of 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 the, the profound and scary secrets of this world that we live in, and how does something like uh, the, the gaze of a drone that's chasing down uh, a, 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 some legacy of the colonized other, right, that, that, that is invisibly hovering here, I mean, what, what is the relationship between that and between what Ellison is understanding uh, to be in play at the, at the very end of the, of the Jim Crow era? Uh, and in between, in between that, uh, I, I offer kind of a chronological assessment of Ellison's career using uh, various lenses or methods that I draw from, from religious studies. I, I think about uh, um, I think about poetic justice, the notion of, of I think about the notion of poetic justice as it relates to racial identity in the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, I look at uh, I look at Invisible Man, published in 1952, in the context of Three, uh, three other important books that are out that year, one uh, by Paul Tillich, The Courage to Be, one by Reinhold Niebuhr, The Irony of American History, and, and then uh, Perry, Perry Miller's uh, Errand to the Wilderness, which is published in 54, but actually delivered at Brown University in 52. Uh, I also uncover Ellison's close relationship with Nathan Scott. Nathan A. Scott Jr. Uh, was a professor of theology and literature at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Uh, he and Ellison became great friends when, Ellis, when, was, when Ellison was on a visiting uh, assignment there. And, and what I found in their correspondence in Ellison's papers in the Library of Congress is that Scott recognizes a kind of, a kind of sensibility in, in Ellison, a kind of religious sensibility. He, he tries to get him involved in in what we would call religion and literature. He called it theology and literature. Uh, but, but he sees Ellison as a writer who is invested in these, these kinds of, of issues and questions. Uh, Ellison was also a, a huge fan of 19th century American literature. In fact, when he was asked to come teach places, he taught at Rutgers, he had a, a Schweitzer chair at NYU, he taught at Chicago and had other sort of shorter, um, shorter appointments. 
They would also often assume famous African-American novelists would come in and teach, oh, maybe African-American literature, but he would say, no, I want to teach a course on Civil War literature or a course on 19th century American literature, which at the time was very a white core. I mean, his, he's, he's drawing on larger influences, but he's also flummoxing a lot of the expectations. So he's, he's teaching Melville and Hawthorne um, instead of uh, these expectations. Uh, I'm also interested in, in how Ellison's second novel, which he never finished, he started writing almost immediately after, almost immediately after Invisible Man was published in 1952. And he never finished it. He saved it for the last time on his computer, December 31st, 1993. He died in March of 94. He's writing and writing and rewriting. And he says that he's, he's trying to capture something about race in America. The problem is he's doing it from roughly 1954 to 1994. He's doing it from basically Brown v. Board to the Million Man March. What does race in America mean during that period of time? Well, it's constantly changing. You can never get a hand on it. And so I use uh, kind of changing dynamics of, of American civil religion as a way to pin down what it is that he's unable to capture. Uh, because he was, he was invested in a highly centripetal understanding of what we would call American civil religion. I use the trope invisible theology in a couple of ways. On the one hand, it is the fact that this theological sensibility has largely escaped the attention of scholars. Uh, if you look at most writing that talks about Ellison at all, uh, in, in what we would notice, or what we would call religious terms, it talks about his preachers, some who are cultural figures who may as well be uh, um, jazz players. Um, not that that's not important, but, but it's, a, it's a different uh, thing. But nobody really understands him to draw on the, these kinds of uh, these, this, this strong uh, intellectual, historical, and cultural legacy. And so the invisible theology is, is the theological dimension that has not been seen, but also it is a theology of invisibility, which is to say that the condition of being black in America, the, the, the concept of race itself, uh, as a condition of invisibility, taps into a longer genealogy of a, a longer the, theological, a longer religious and theological uh, genealogy of the concept of invisibility. And actually, you can see ways that it passes through Ellison and is really helpful for understanding both the present and the future tense. Are there any relevant biographical details about Ellison that we should know about? I'm so glad you asked about the biographical details. Um, one thing about him is, is that he falls outside of, of many of the major narratives that we use to talk about African-American culture. Uh, often we fall into the rural South, urban North binary. Ellison's from Oklahoma. Uh, he then enters into this migration through Alabama and Tuskegee uh, and then ends up in Harlem where he lives the rest of his life. But he understands himself to be outside of, of the, the major migration narrative of, of the 20th century. And he's outside of many of the major arguments as well. He's not a social scientist. He's, he, dislikes, he dislikes that approach to culture. He feels like it's, it's demeaning that it takes away human elements. Uh, he, 
He believes that human beings are capable of extraordinary actions, even if they don't always and can't always fulfill them. Uh, and so he becomes, he's a bit of an outlier. Uh, he becomes a bit of a pariah. He's sometimes called Uncle Tom. Uh, but he, he fights back and lashes back against that uh, with, a, with, I think, a very clear cultural sensibility, which is something like this. Uh, whatever it is that, that our experience and our, and our, our life is, and whatever the, the, the cruelty or the, or the dispossession or, or the exclusion or the violence may be, uh, there, there's a sensibility of, of blues, there's a sensibility of a kind of exception to these conditions that we are human beings and we are meaning-making creatures. And there are ways in which we take these situations and 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 imbue them with with a kind of meaning that, that moves beyond the material realities of the presence. You might say that 65 years earlier he's taking lemons and making lemonade. Uh, if you catch my drift. I have a question about your methodology. Yes. Early on in the introduction, you identify Ellison as a secular writer. And methodologically, how do you get from secular writings to theology? How do you make that interpretive move? And what scholars of religion provide you the methodological tools to make that move? Yes. Uh, so Ellison is what we call a secular writer. He had no specific uh, religious commitments, he's not writing out of a specific tradition, he's not identified as such. Uh, and yet what I see is, is a kind of uh, a kind of analogy here. I actually go to Schleiermacher, though I think it goes, we can think about it from Schleiermacher, really Schleiermacher to Geertz through Durkheim uh, and, and on. And what I'm interested in is this relationship between particularity and universality. Of course, Schleiermacher's definition of religion in the second, uh, I mean, the, the second um, discourse um, on religion uh, to its cultural despisers, says defines religion as, as this kind of aggregation between universal and particular. And what I do is I take, uh, I take Ellison's concept of race, which race itself is, of course, a, a secular concept. It's one that, that comes out of this materialist moment. It's one that comes out of the social sciences in terms of its definition. And, and I say that actually what, Ellis, what Ellison is doing with, with racial identity and within cultural expression is, is analogous to Schleiermacher's understanding of his definition of religion, that to be, uh, that African-American cultural expression is highly particularized for Ellison. Uh, it is what he grew up with, it's what he knows, uh, it's what any person can gather from, from the kind of mother wit of, of their early existence and, and the ongoing interaction with uh, other people and, and the world, it's highly particularized, and yet it also uh, interacts with, corresponds to, comes into contact with, must negotiate a, a, a larger sense of being human. And so for him, the notion of the human is something of a universal. Now, what he wouldn't say is that the human, often this turns into the human is the white and the universal. He would say no, he would say that that actually th this set of correspondences kind of applies to everybody. He has a really lovely way of putting it. Uh, it's one of my favorites. He says, you know, he says the, the Negro writer, which is his term, he says the Negro writer writes out of a sense 
of a specific wound. The wound for us is the experience of being black in America. We can talk about slavery. We can talk about these other aspects. He says, but, but all, all novels deal with this kind of, of sensibility. All novels are about outsiders. All novels deal with a, a kind of wounding. All novels deal with, uh, and I'm blanking on the specific term he uses here, but all novels are about, uh, uh, so, so what he says is, is that I, I write out of my experience and, and I am creating something meaningful out of, out of, of disaster, calamity, love, uh, awesomeness, out of all of this, but it is directed specifically in my context. Ellison was often asked, why don't you write protest novels? By that, what, what the, the questioner would mean is, why don't you put in your novels that racism is bad and give very clear instances of that to, to display, to show it? And what Ellison said was, actually, every novel is a protest novel. Every All art protests against something. He says, for, for me, I, can, I write novels within my, my vernacular mode. And, and so that is a particular rendering of, of a more universal genre or form. But it's not unique to African-American writers. Dostoevsky is protesting against the limits of 19th century rationalism. Uh, Don Quixote protests against uh, the things that, Don, that Cervantes is invested in. He goes back to, uh, to Sophocles. He says, we, Sophocles is protesting against something. We, you know, we may or may not know what it is, but what unites Sophocles and Shakespeare and Cervantes to me is that we, we are addressing something about a, a human condition, which Ellison understood to be a universal, that we have to enter through the highly specific, through, the, through a, a sense of particularity. And so what I say is, is that Ellison's understanding of literature, or even of cultural production, has this religious sensibility here. And so this is how the secular writer writes religiously. And then the question also becomes, so how does it become theology, right? And this, I, I see you smiling here. This is the Religious Studies uh, uh, podcast. Uh, I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in is, uh, well, annihilating this hard, fast wall that, that's erected between theology and religious studies as these kinds of signifiers. Uh, and, and so one of the things that I say is that religion becomes the process. Theology becomes the meaning. So in other words, if the process is about the aggregation of the particular and the universal, uh, the theology is what is the meaning that arises out of that. And what I hope that readers will see is a way that, that there's a kind of co-functionality between religion and theology. That, that they require one another to make sense of one another. And I, and I don't mean this in a, in a highly confessional sense, but I also think that, that there can be more, uh, more an understanding of more interplay uh, to, to be in play uh, between them, within the process. And I think Ellison gives us a fantastic vehicle for understanding that and seeing that. Which contemporary scholars influence your methodological moves? So I have a couple of clusters. I mean, I, there are two outstanding recent books. One is, um, well, the recent, uh, two outstanding books that I, that I look to. One is J. Cameron Carter's Race uh, Theological Account, which does the kind of deep excavation 
that I don't pretend to do, but that inspires me, right? That, that I'm trying to, it's a gesture toward, to the hard digging that he's done. Uh, and and in, in a way also understanding uh, the, the particularities of race to, to, to draw from longer, these longer kinds of traditions. So again, it's not a universality per se, but it is something certainly more universal than we have previously imagined uh, longer legacies of race. Uh, another one is uh, Willie Jennings's uh, The Christian Imagination. I see these as, uh, they may or may not be in actuality, but for me, I read them close together. And again, this, this kind of digging, this kind of excavation, excavative project that, that looks at uh, the depth and resonance and meaning of this, this concept that is taken on uh, more social scientific um, valences. I think two other scholars who, who strongly inspire me are uh, Tracy Fessenden and her book, uh, Culture and Redemption. And just in case I got it wrong, I'll say Tracy Fessenden with her book, Redemption and Culture. Because I, I see in my own project this, uh, a sense of, of having established the terms of, of social history, having established the terms of, of the, the kind of focusing in on not the grand narratives, but the the smaller details. That the, the uh, not focusing on the grand narratives, but but in certain moments and and being sensitive to the exclusions that are caused by the grand narratives. And so then focusing on on more of the micro histories. Uh, what she does, and I love this move, and it's and it's so valuable. She says, okay, uh, or what I understand her to be doing, and I love this move, is she's, okay. So we have established that. Grand narratives are limiting because they exclude. So, what happens if we create grand narratives that actually are built that that are built of the stuff that has been excluded? And that's what I see Carter doing. It's what I see uh, Jenny doing in a way, and it's definitely what I uh, want to, to do. In the book, you recall a common question that is asked about Ralph Ellison, and that question is something along the lines of, is he a Negro writer or is this a book about Negroes? Yes. Uh, that's some version of that question, yeah. right? Um, what's, what, what's at stake in that answer? Or in the answer to that question? Sure. Um, so the, and, and you, you did a nice job of uh, synopsis of the two versions of that question. One is, is, is are, are you a Negro writer or a writer who happens to be a Negro? Or is this Invisible Man uh, a, a Negro novel or a novel that happens to be about a Negro. And then I think the, the question becomes, I mean, the, the way that I answer that question is yes, right? Uh, because the, these, the, that is the particular and that is the, 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 uh, the particular, that's Schleiermacher's two poles. Uh, what's at stake in the question is, I think, a sense of, of how you understand or how you want to understand uh, within this historical question, the historical people asking it, uh, would have understood a Negro novel to protest, to offer a very clear, to say very clearly, uh, racism is bad, oppression is bad, I'm going to um, give you endless horrific details that's going to you know, illustrate this in, in so many ways, and then at the end I'm going to give you a nice little lesson, right? And that that is... And that's overstating things, uh, but, but something like Native Son, which is a much more complicated novel than that, but Ellison didn't necessarily see it that way. 
Um, that would be the Negro novel. The novel that happens to be about a Negro, I think the problem with that question is that it under it underestimates the power of the particular. In other words, uh, in saying that uh, Invisible Man just happens to be about a Negro, it, it presumes that that element, that the racial element, that the particularity is not important. And so somewhere between those two overdeterminations is where I, I think we should be looking, and that's where Schleiermacher's particulars and universals become important, because it's not about being particular. Nobody's all particular. Nobody's all universal, right? We're all caught up in the midst of this, of this messy cloud of, of, of identity. And, and for Ellison, that was precisely the point. And I think that that is also what is so effective about this, this notion of invisibility, is that we're always constantly aggregating and changing, and, and there's a kind of sense of play that, that takes place within the process of identity formation uh, and, and in, within the, the production of cultural culture through novels, but certainly other things as well. Thank you. Final question for you. We are, we're conducting this interview, we're having this conversation in the early phase of the changes associated with President-elect Trump. Do you see any contemporary relevance to Ralph Ellison's invisible theology? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I think I think for a couple of reasons. One, I think the, the it shows first of all. Uh, I mean the I think the the fact that people are even remotely shocked at the outcome of this election shows the. How, 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 how potent this concept of invisibility is. I mean, people were blindsided by it, uh, and you listen to the to the responses, and it's economics, and it's this, it's that, it's the press. But but at the end of the day, we we exist within this kind of structure of reality that is that is that is very old, and that is sort of imbued with a kind of realness. Uh, that, that permeates the culture. And so this, the fact that the kind, of, the kind of racial logic that has produced the results we see, I think, are in a different shade, perhaps, a different hue, right? I mean, whiteness. No, Peter Urban had this great piece a number of times this weekend saying that whiteness is not a race. It's not just an unconscious thing. It's, it's, a, it's a race. And so we see this with the invisible theology, that, that whiteness has become, um, in a way, this, this kind of racial dispensation. And the, the election, I think, shows that for certain. Well, thanks so much, Cooper. This has been a fantastic conversation. And uh, let me compliment you. It is a superbly researched and a meticulously well-written book. And uh, it's, it's an enjoyable read. So congratulations on your first book. And thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, and, and I, I hope that your listeners uh, enjoy. Thanks very much for that, Brad. Wonderful to hear from you again, and wonderful to hear about Ralph Ellison, who I must admit to having never heard of before that interview. It was you'll, great. Be, you'll be aware of the Invisible Man, though. Yes. Um, um, you know, now I can connect the dots. Yeah, yeah. Um, but lots of nice intersections there, ideas of race, of cultural production, um, you know, the contextualization of, of thinking about religion at different 
you know, social circumstances and history. So, you know, all good stuff. Yeah, and thanks to Nasser uh, for facilitating that as ever. Nasser are one of our sponsors, along with the BASR and the IAHR. So, um, thanks to you guys. So we've just been spending a few days in Bonn discussing, as, as we said, the public rhetoric of good and bad religion. And we had promised you last week that we were going to be coming up with loads and loads of podcasts and everything. But well, one thing we promised was that you'd be hearing from us while we were here. Yeah, well, we, we've done that. We've we've fulfilled that promise. We said we'd do some recording here, and we are recording. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the schedule was just a bit too tight to... Well, and... And intense, yeah. We spent uh, we spent a few days discussing at length um, and the, this rhetoric, and you know, we thought initially we might do a roundtable on it, but after having spent three days discussing it, we thought we'd rather just enjoy dinner rather than recording another podcast. But never fear, we have made lots of good contacts. We've got to meet a few people who have been involved in the project in one way or another in person. We've got to meet a few other people that we hope to be involved in the project in the future. And uh, we've spoken to a few listeners as well. It's been it's been a productive time, if not directly in terms of, of uh, interviews. Exactly. And so thanks to Adrian Herman and everyone at Bond for a fantastic few days. Next week, we've got an interview with uh, another interview that Daniel Gorman's recorded for us, um, this time on the subject of evangelical yoga, which we'll talk a little bit more about next week. Um, and that's an interview with Candy Gunter Brown. So do come back for that. Absolutely. Um, Thanks to our sponsors, the BASR, of course, but also the IAHR and the NAASR. Do remember to uh, leave us a rating on iTunes, to check out our Facebook page, our Twitter feed. I think there might be a Google+. Plus. I don't know. There is a YouTube, and that's slowly uh, picking up listeners there. Use our Amazon affiliate links if you want to support the project at no extra cost to yourself. Or if you want to support the project at extra cost to yourself, you can do so at our Patreon link, which is patreon.com backslash project rs that's the one and don't forget to keep checking out the transcriptions of our podcasts at religiousstudiesproject.com um i think that's about all for this week david except for right, you yeah. know the usual um, um feeling dank uh, for listening for for hurin.